Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Kaiser Education Series. My name is Gabe Derman, and I'm a human performance and education specialist at Kaiser. I'll be moderating today's panel alongside my teammate, Mike Compton. Today's discussion is centered around the application of plyometrics and sport performance. We are grateful to have two awesome performance coaches joining us on the KES. They have great experience, their resumes speak for themselves, and we're excited to sit down and learn from them tonight. Our first panelist is Dan Rittenauer. Dan currently serves as the Assistant of Player Performance and Sports Science Coordinator for the Minnesota Vikings. Prior to his current position, Dan was the Assistant Director at the Nebraska Athletic Performance Lab. Preceding his time at Nebraska, he served as the Director of Athletic Performance at Wilmington College, coaching athletes from 23 different sports. Dan earned his bachelor's from Luther College, his master's in exercise science from the University of Nebraska at, Oklahoma, at Omaha, and is currently pursuing a professional doctorate through the University of Limerick. Our second panelist is Dr. Ramsey Nijem. Dr. Nijem is a high performance coach and educator with over a decade of experience training some of the world's best athletes. He currently is the director of performance for men's basketball at the University of Kansas and previously served as the head strength conditioning coach for the NBA Sacramento Kings. Dr. Nijem founded the Applied Performance Coach Certification and Mentorship Program where he educates hundreds of coaches and is a consultant to some of the biggest names in health, performance, and fitness. To learn more about his certification and mentorship, you can visit www.appliedperformancecoach.com. We'll make sure to include the link here and in the published episode. Welcome, Dan and Ramsey. We're pumped to have you here with us and ready to get started. Dan, congrats on the fairly new position in Minnesota. Ramsey, congrats on the national championship and not one but two first-round draft picks in the recent NBA draft. What a run for Kansas basketball, and while I'm sure you have some great memories from last season, I know summer training has started and the focus has shifted to next season in Lawrence. Two weeks ago, we had Molly Benetti from South Carolina on with us, so now back-to-back -back episodes of the Kaiser Education Series with the strength and conditioning coaches for both the men's and women's NCAA basketball champions. Pretty cool stuff there. A reminder for all our attendees, you can drop any questions you have in the chat, and we'll have lots of time at the end of the discussion to address them to our two panelists. So, all right, let's go. KES is underway. The first question I have is for the both of you. We'll start with Ramsey, and then Dan will make sure to give you a chance to answer as well. My first question is centered around the classification of plyometric exercises. In other words, you have all these plyometric exercises to choose from, in place, hopping, skipping, single leg, double leg, depth drop, and so on. We're curious to know how you organize all these exercises and the intensities of them. Ramsey, we'll start with you. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, there's certainly no shortage of options somebody would have. Um, but when I kind of just begin to think about classifying or categorizing or, the, you know, ultimately the progression of these things, um, you know, obviously amplitude comes to mind. Uh, and so that can be measured by a few different kind of lenses, right? You can look at the height somebody's reaching or you can look at maybe the depth they're dropping from. Um, keeping in mind the plyometric, you're going to need a stretch shortening cycle kind of action going on there. Uh, but I think of amplitude, I think of distance or depth, I think of velocity, obviously bilateral, unilateral. I mean, I kind of have general rules around kind of just those concepts, right? So, you know, when our guys come in, for example, June, our big kind of off season starts in June and, and progresses through essentially September, really. Um, but, you know, I think breaks before gas is something that I've said before. And so I want to build the ability to control eccentric forces before I introduce you know, these big forces that we ultimately want to turn around, right? The, the end goal in, in plyometric training is that you eccentrically lengthen 
and then you turn that around for a propulsive action. And so, you know, if you don't have brakes before gas, so you may be doing maybe your athlete some harm. Um, I think sagittal before frontal or transverse, right? Like if you're not good in sagittal plane, I, I'm just not going to bet my money on it that you're good at frontal or transverse actions, right? I think control before chaos. And so, um, you know, an example of that might be it's pre-planned. So maybe we're going to do a snap down to a hold. And when I say go, you're going to jump and then you're going to land and hold that same kind of position. Well, that's pre-planned. I'm going to tell you we're going to do that. And obviously, eventually, maybe I'm standing behind you. You don't see me. And now it's just a vocal cue. Um, and you don't know when those things are coming. So uh, I think control before planned. And then and then it gets into the more kind of, I think, in the weeds of plyometrics, right, of how you're breaking this thing down. And, um, and so before I jump into there, I'll, you know, pause and give Dan a chance to jump in. But those are just some ideas that come to mind, you know, when you think about the categorization or classification of these things. Yeah, I, I think you nailed it. Um, I, I like to start vertical, you know, vertical and, and especially in the sagittal plane. And then you can start working on some horizontal translation because really all, all exercises are kind of gaining different joint angles with uh, intensities, velocities, durations, angle of insult. So how, how, you know, how are you going to subject the, the athlete and the athlete's tissues to force? And vertical tends to be something that kind of to your point, if they can't handle vertical, I'm not touching horizontal or lateral or rotational or chaotic with a vertebral pull, right? So I want to start there. I want to start decelerating. Can they break effectively? Can And then from there, you know, it's like anything else, like it, it becomes its own screen. So if they, if, can they decelerate and if their feet fly out and their knees collapse in, well, that kid is not doing hardcore horizontal jumps or whatever, right? Like, like we need some dorsiflexion work. We need some knee control work, things like that. Um, and then I, I really like to just start to that same point, um, you know, in an early phase, if you're just starting with someone, I think it's important, like you said, with the stretch shortening cycle, but making sure you cover your bases, long stretch shortening cycle, short stretch shortening cycle, dosing them with some elastic, dosing them with some more compliant ones where they can spend some time on the ground. And then you can kind of start to identify who are your workhorses, who are your greyhounds, and then start to kind of cut it up, um, you know, and, and to that, to that point, I think early on the deceleration, some easy ply some easy rudiment type jumps um and then just starting to dose them with these positions and lay that foundation and give you a place to go yeah dan you killed that and I, you said a word there that really resonated this idea of gaming it right like ultimately i think there's, there's two things there like one have fun with it but also we want it to transfer to sport which is ultimately the game so i really do like that that term and uh if, if someone ever hears me say it, just no credit to Dan for it. <laughs> yeah. So um, a couple of things that, you know, I'm listening to your answers, the commonalities there, the eccentric portion first, right. Being able to control uh, Rams, you say control before chaos, both of you mentioned sagittal plane and maybe starting with some of the pre-planned. If we look, you know, it's a fairly broad question to ask, um, you know, Hey, early off season, what are you doing or what, what is appropriate for training? But if we make it maybe a little bit more specific and we'll go to Ramsey here and Dan, you hit a little bit on some of the early things you like to do. Let's take a basketball player, freshman in college, which is a scenario you get pretty often, at least once a year. Um, where are you starting? And, and you hit on snap downs a little bit. Is that an area where you like to focus in the beginning? And if so, how long and, and what does that look like? Give us some insight into that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, we start with snap downs and it's a bilateral tall snap down. So when I say tall, I think hands over head extended and then onto the toes. 
snap down in and obviously hold that bottom position. And I'm queuing a breaking system there. Like I don't want them to actually be too compliant with that. I don't, it shouldn't look like a yielding kind of vehicle, right? Like as soon as you hit, I want you to stop. Um, and there's times where you want to yield. And to Dan's credit, right, you could talk about kind of longer or short stretch shortening cycles. But we'll start with a bilateral snap down. And then eventually we snap down. We start bilateral, but we'll snap down into a unilateral either side. And I actually cue a shift over to that side. So I actually want to see, for example, some internal rotation and get all load over that leg. Uh, but then we're pairing that. It's not that we're just going to work on the brakes. We're also jump roping and doing pogos throughout the month of June. So we're building the brakes on one side, but then we're building with extensive plows. To me, a jump rope is the best extensive plow you can do because it's low amplitude. You're going to get a lot of repetitions in. It's fundamentally a good athletic kind of test, right? Like, can you jump rope? Can you hit the ground? You're working on ground contact. So many good athletes, quote unquote, you put a jump rope in your hand and I'm blown away at how uncoordinated they are, right? Or their feet are kicking behind them. So we're working on the jump rope with the, with the snap down. The jump rope starts bilateral. The pogo start bilateral. And then we'll go to alternating and then eventually truly unilateral. Um, so we're going to build kind of the extensive stretch shortening cycle on one end and we're going to build the brakes or the, of, the, of the kind of the big muscles there. Uh, on the other side. And then they'll start to merge in June. So now come June, we're now actually going to be doing our counter movement jumps, which you might classify as like a long stretch shortening cycle versus like a depth jump, which really won't come until we kind of get back after August. August, they go home for three weeks. And then when they come back, it's like, all right, now we're looking at that first game. Now we're looking at really tuning this thing up. And that's when depth jumps and, and the fun Instagram stuff happens. But we don't get there until probably a solid 10 to 12 weeks. Yeah, and, and Dan, go ahead if you want to comment a little bit on from a field sport athlete uh, context, early off season or kind of first things you're looking for. You mentioned a little bit about the long versus short, you know, how much time are you spending building one versus the other, especially early on and then kind of progressing forward early off season. Yeah, I mean, kind of to Ramsey's point, I, I, I don't think you want to take away everything. I think you or take away something entirely. I think you do want to have, have something dosed in. So, yeah, can they can they snap down and decelerate in a bilateral stance? Can they do it in a lunge stance? Um, but then, like you said, on the back end, we might do rudiment. We might just kind of build in these multi-directional, multi-planar movements that build in some component of hip control, build in some component of foot and ankle stability. And are they able to hold these postures in a repeated fashion for five reps, for 10 reps? Can they do it in place? Okay. I mean, a lot of times for me in early off season, it's been, okay, we're going to do bilateral forward smooth jumps. I want good foot contacts. I want good postures. You know, you're yielding at the ankle, knee, hip and similar angles the whole way. And I'm going to walk and you're, you can't pass my pace of walking. It's just got to be a smooth controlled thing. Cause these guys, they're hyper competitive. They're hyper, especially elastic athletes. That's the things that they're good at. So they want to start really getting after it. Right. So you got to, you got to spend a lot of time pulling the brakes and making sure that they can lay down a sound foundation. Um, so I do like to start very, very similar to what you're talking. We got to hit position first. We got to make sure that they can control and own these positions. And then when you build out, then it's going to start adding, can we do a single response, a full effort? Okay. One, let's reset. We'll do a full go. Okay. Can we do back to back after a week or two of that? Can we do back to back to back? Can we do transition transitional ones, lateral to forward, vertical to horizontal? And then you're starting to, like you're saying, now we're starting to push, push the needle towards, you know, we got to get ready for games at the end of the day. Like, 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 and 
none of these, none of our sports are purely vertical. None of them are purely horizontal, right? Like there's components on each of them. So the athletes have to be able to have, you know, in chaotic sports, at least ability to, you know, handle different directions and things that you can't really prepare for, but you can at least get them used to how, how they can handle the base positions in all of these. So one of the things I'll ask though, is as a coach watching them as a practitioner, following them from the early off season, as you move forward, right. You see them doing their sport and performing on the court or on the field as well during that time. Doesn't need to be the entire checklist, but as you go forward, you say, okay, this athlete needs to be able to do X or needs to be able to do Y. Like, can you share some of those things as a checklist, as a coach, whether it's visual or something you have written down or like, okay, this is how I know and can actually say for sure that they can handle this. And I'll leave it up to either of you if yeah. one of you wants I, to start with that. Yeah. Like for me, I mean, I, I'm, I, I'm big into the force plate side of it. So, so I use that a lot as a screening mechanism, but also everything's a screen, you know? And I think the easiest example for a lot of this is, a, is in a return to play context. You know, you've, you've heard the, the phrase and I, I got it from Sean Mishka back in the day, you know, the best athletes are the best compensators. When I first heard that, I thought that meant everyone compensates. So there's always something to coach. And then I kind of built out and then like, well, if everyone compensates, and only some people get hurt. Maybe there's other people, but now I kind of view it a lot more in the return to play context of, you know, a lot of these people are so athletic that even if you have 1.5 legs, a lot of them are still really, really talented and they can still piece it together. So like an athlete who's really limited in a knee or something like that, they need to be able to move out of deeper angles of knee flexion or something like that. But a lot of them are so, are so skilled that they'll gain it so that they can still land a really stiff legged. So they don't have to actually break and yield at a deeper knee bend type of angle like that. That's a short example, but you know, there, there's, a, a million pieces to it. They have to be a receiver has to be able to go up and get a ball. They have to be able to go make a, do a cut route, do make a cut, go up vertical and then make another cut off of the landing things along those lines. A, a running back might keep it a little bit more horizontally based or low to the ground, but they have to be able to slam on the brakes, reaccelerate shift, you, you know? So it, it, it's really, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of it ends up coming back to the same things of, these are three planes. We got to be able to handle just different combinations. And like to, to Rand's point earlier, it's got to get chaotic at some point. Like if they can predict the whole, whole, whole uh, drill, then we aren't really, really getting and simulating what we need to. Yeah, co completely agree, Dan. And then, you know, maybe just to add to it, you know, uh, you know, force plates are going to give us a lot of kind of deep information, right? Especially involving the kinetics of kind of what's going on. And, you know, when Dan talks about, you know, these are, these athletes are great at compensating, you know, you're on one and a half leg, you may still be able to reach the same jump height. Right. But there's a, a 10 other metrics that we may want to consider. Right. And then obviously getting asymmetry. So there's a whole kind of kinetic discussion and then kinematically, which you can get some of it with a force play, right. You're going to get the depth, for example, and that's something we'll look at, especially in a return to play. Um, but just with the coach's eye, right, for those who are listening who don't have those things, it's like, well, what are we looking at? When we say control, you know, what's happening at the ankle, knee, and hip? What's happening at the trunk? Every time that I ask you to snap down, you fold over at the trunk and you just have nothing going on. That's going to take us a long time to get out of. And the, while we're getting out of that, we're probably losing some of the force that we're trying to turn around. And so, you know, I just start to look at what, whether it's sagittal, frontal, transverse. Um, it really doesn't matter. It's ultimately 
is this athlete moving how we want to see? And are we seeing good angles? Are we seeing good stacking? Are we seeing uh, now there's bandwidth, right? And that's, that's a term all this thing is using. I'm a fan of that idea. There's, there's bandwidth with that. So everyone's not going to fit a model per se, but if every time I ask you to change direction and slide out of this thing, your trunk folds over laterally. And now your center of mass is outside the base of support. You're either going to fall over or you're just going to take forever to get back to where we need to go. And so those are things that I look for. It's ultimately how are you controlling and navigating gravity to ultimately get back? And obviously stretch shortening cycle and plyometrics is going to fit within all of that. But it's it probably starts with even maybe some underpinning qualities, right? Like if your trunk is always swaying, is it trunk control? Is that a motor pattern problem? Is it actually just a core or strength problem? Uh, is it a teaching problem? Like you don't know what you're doing. So there's a lot to unpack. And so as a coach, you just look and say, I don't know what's going on here, but I see that your trunk is outside of your hips and you're getting beat every time. We better figure that out. And then obviously you go into the weight room and you and we, we problem solve. Um, so yeah, I think there's a kinetic discussion and having force plates. Um, and we have them too, and we're fortunate to, to be able to do that. But uh, if you're if you're coaching youth athletes, you know, ground contact, you can hear it like you sound like you take forever on the ground. I'm not even looking. I just hear it. And all these other athletes are beating you and they sound better. Right. You can hear some of that. So, um, yeah, I think that's just that coach's eye, I guess. And uh, if you have tech that allows you to kind of inform those decisions even better, for sure. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I think we're going to get to the force plate in a second. I don't want I know, Dan, you had mentioned that and then. Uh, Ramsey, you said that you have that as well. So let's definitely get into that. Just before we do, though, um, my question for Rant for Ramsey is: What kind of video are you taking? Video while these guys are on the court? Are you watching the court video as well? You know, to actually see, okay, this is what's happening on the sport. And are you taking video of your own when you're doing any sort of on-court plyo, slide, shuffles, things like that? You know, I don't do that now. Uh, I that was a practice that we did. As far as the as far as taking video in our weight room or with some of our movements, stuff, we'll do slow mos of some of our acceleration work and stuff like that. Uh, but that stuff doesn't heavily inform. Uh, we watch a ton of film, obviously, right? Like it's college basketball. I mean, even the NBA, you're gonna watch film, and so I do watch a ton of film, and that informs a lot of what we do, just based off conversations with our sport coaches, with our athlete. Um, I know the game enough to be dangerous, where I understand what we're looking at and, and why that's probably not good for you. And why, if we change it to this, that's probably going to help you. Um, so we watch a lot of the sport film and obviously watch almost every rep in practice or a game. Um, but I don't, I used to actually do a ton of filming in the weight room. And what I found personally is that unless you have an intern or a grad assistant or someone who can hold it for you, I found myself worried about catching content or catching film and not coaching movement. And so I moved away from that personally, but if I had 10 interns, I certainly would probably tell one to film everything and review later, but I'm just not in a position to do that now. Yeah. And then one more uh, kind of quick question before we head over to the force plate question is how about from a queuing standpoint, you had mentioned queuing a couple of times. Um, let's just start with like bilateral snap down from the start. Like what are your go-to cues? Are they external internal? What are you saying to your athletes? And maybe that's a little bit a nugget that some of our practitioners can kind of take home or at least learn from yeah for sure from from our snap down uh we always cue tall and we just say go and when we say go i want you to snap down as hard as you can and i and i use the analogy of breaking i actually use the analogy of a driver's license for the whole kind of conversation around this um and so my athletes begin to understand like okay a 
license means I know how to drive. Well, okay, I can, I can control this vehicle, right? Which is your human system. Uh, and then I talk about braking. Like I want you to slam on the brakes. There's athletes that yield. And I tell them, it's like, look, as soon as your feet hit, I'm watching your hips slowly drop. I want, this should be more like an e-brake. As soon as the feet hit, I want you to pull that e-brake and I shouldn't see much movement. You'll see a little bit, obviously, because the, the system has to stiffen up, but I don't want to see these gross movement changes at the knee or hip or you won't see them at the ankle much. But um, so yeah, I just talk about the e-brake system and I think that that resonates decently well with athletes. Um, you know, so you might call that an external cue really because you're not talking anything internal, but um, yeah, that's what I kind of go with. Yeah, I'm always interested to hear what, you know, what kind of queuing people are using. I know snap downs, a lot of people are doing them and, you know, especially early off season. Uh, Dan, let's shift to some of the force plate um, information that you're getting over with the Minnesota Vikings and maybe some of the stuff you've previously done with the Nebraska Athletic Lab as it relates to some of the signatures of athletes or gaining understanding of what this athlete might need. What are some of the metrics that you like looking at and things that are helpful for you and in making informed decisions. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, with the Vikings, I'm pretty new, so we've been able to implement some things, but a lot of the stuff where I really cut my teeth was, you know, rolling it out with what, well, that was, what was really cool at Nebraska is, you know, you're getting jumps. I think in a, in a year and a half, two years, we got over 50,000 trials on the, on the force deck. So like, and then some of them was, and a lot of it was unilateral. A lot of it was elastic jumps and a lot of it was counter movements. And some of it was ash tests with the shoulder. So you do start to be able to see these profiles of what kind of athletes love the ground and which kind of athletes can, can get out of it. So, um, but, so I think, so I'm going to zoom out a second on that. So, cause for, for metrics, the first, most important, th the first thing is, well, which test, you know, which tests are we looking at? There's performance metrics that we want to look at in terms of like, if you want to view them like benchmarks, um, you know, that if there's a team average or something like that, what does a starter look like versus a non-star, you know, for performance, you can look at, RSI, you know, say we're looking at counter movement jump. I think a lot of people look at RSI mod as a lot, a lot of times like a fatigue metric, but also that's really, you can, an athlete can change that up based on, um, based on strategy a lot, it, it, whether they're compliant or not compliant. So then I like to compare that with jump height. So you still have an overall output measure. So if someone does just a really quick drop in and get out their RSI might spike, but their jump doesn't, you know, and, and for people who haven't interacted, that's just time on the ground versus time in the air. You know, it's how much bang for your buck and the efficiency of the jump peak power for body mass is a good one. Um, and then from there, then, you know, for counter movement, then you can start looking for asymmetries and, and to Ramsey's point, like all of these, all of these tests and metrics, there's a million of them and a lot of them are visual. So like, that's, I think what really helps is you can see them do the test and you have to be consistent on how the, how you do the assessment. But you can see that athlete does this and their curve looks like this. They move like this, their curve looks like this. Why? You know, so if they shift, well, you'll see these lines start to get away. If they shift on the loading phase, you'll see it, you know, okay, well, may maybe there's a gap in their knee. Maybe there's a gap in their hip. Are they able to drop in? Are they able to sink in? So you can start looking at braking, deceleration, um, you know, the, you know, there's the force at zero velocity people like that, you know, but it's really more about just trying to build I like to use the amount that, you know, back, back when, uh, um, when masking was first becoming a thing with COVID, the Swiss cheese thing. I think that's a really valuable analogy because each test is um, one thing that I've learned over the years is that each test is only um, a reflection of that athlete on that test at that moment. So you want to build a, a, a good 
a good background of data on these. So um, if an athlete comes in on test day and they're trashed, well, their numbers aren't gonna be very good on the force plate. That doesn't mean they're a trash athlete. It means they had a bad day. And so, okay, well, let's, let's just kind of diversify our bonds here with the, with the, um, the jump testing. So we got counter movement, which is a slow stretch shortening cycle. The contraction times are anywhere from, you know, 0.4 to 0.75 seconds, depending on the athlete. It's a deeper knee bend. There's a unilateral jump, which is an even longer ground contact times. It's higher forces out of the, out of the single leg and the, the knee. And then you've got like an elastic test, which is much faster. So then you're really starting to triangulate and then you can compare it with change of direction. You can compare it with, with absolute strength. And then you can start to build out your own profile of what kind what these athletes look like. Cause you know, you know, obviously an elastic test, you don't want a very compliant movement. You want them to be able to get in off the ground really fast. You know, on a single leg jump, maybe you, you're gearing towards height, but you also, are they dropping into their knee or are they hip hinging? You know, Kaltzafaki has written a lot of good research recently showing the horizontal, you know, the triple jump or whatever for distance. You can, again, to our point of the compensation, you can really, you can really get around that if you're limited in a knee by just doing more hip hinge. So you always want your coach's eye geared up with it. And then from there, and, you know, a lot of some of the metrics carry over, but you start to piece it together. What are the good athletes really showing? And that's usually the power metrics, the jump metrics, the deceleration aspects. Um, and then you can start to build an individual profile on each guy on what their drivers are with their injury histories and whatever. Yeah. And I think in a little bit, we'll talk about the different types of athletes within the same sport, right? Your force bias athletes, your speed bias athletes. So we'll definitely get to that. So it's a nice precursor to that. Ramsey, how about on your end with Kansas and force plates, you mentioned you use them to what degree and what are you looking for when you see, you know, when you have an athlete come in and you begin testing on an athlete and over time, and how does that aid in the prescription of maybe your plyometric training? Yeah, good question. So we do uh, use force plates. We jump once a week, uh, and we're super consistent with that. Um, from there, what we do is we're able to build out, and I'm, I'm fortunate to say we, because, you know, we have a prestigious sports science lab here um, that gives basically delivers me uh, PhD students that help. And so my PhD student now is a total stud, and uh, we kind of have a few things going on at once, right? One is like, are kind of acute feedback mechanisms. We're going to jump you. And right after that session, they go to practice. We're going to jump on the computer. We're going to look and kind of see where are we at. And we'll never, we'll never base too many decisions off that conversation. We might red flag and don't say, well, let's see what happens next week on that. Or uh, he complained to this. Let's pull him in here on, you know, a few days. Um, so that's always bilateral. We have some injured cases, right? Because ultimately, you know, as Dan was was speaking, I thought you did a great job with that. It's ultimately what, what we're trying to do is build a deep needs analysis around each individual athlete. And then one step over is like, now give them an individual program. And so any athlete that comes in with different things, we're going to do a few more kind of tests. And so like we have a guy now, um, you know, and, and it starts with the bilateral. We saw some things there. Uh, case in point, we see that he doesn't load essentially well relative to his propulsive kind of metrics, right? And so he said, why is that? Is it because his propulsive is just through the roof and his eccentric stacks against the rest of the team fairly well? Uh, and that may or may not be good, right? That, because if you can if you can produce a lot, we talk about the brakes versus gas, like he could step on the gas really well, but for some reason the brakes aren't here. What's going on there? Let's go into a true unit, because we have bilateral force plates. And so, and Dan, I'm 
you know, it sounds like you do as well, obviously. So you're getting asymmetries from bilateral movement, but that that becomes to me more of a preference conversation, right? How does the body choose to load asymmetry when a, within a bilateral task? But let's deep dive. So then what we'll do is we'll do a unilateral counter movement jump. There's pros and cons to that, like Dan mentioned, right? A longer um, contact time, but obviously uh, more force out of that unilateral leg. But now you don't have the option to get to the other leg. So it's now, it's, you know, when we put this limb by itself, what is it going to do? And then we'll do a few other tests um, we've played around with, and I've played around with my career, not necessarily isometric mid-thigh pull, but we'll put a trap bar underneath the safety pins and we'll do an isometric mid-thigh pull that way. We actually found in the NBA, I wasn't, I didn't, wasn't a huge fan of that test. There's a lot of challenges with isometric mid-thigh pulls, as we know. Um, but what we found, we just looked at other metrics to decide this. So for example, when we did our isometric mid-thigh pull with our NBA guys, we looked at a dynamic strength index. And what we found was that they're actually producing more force in their counter movement jump, but that doesn't make sense to us because it should be greater in the isometric. So to me, that's not actually, all we're showing is that they're not pulling a lot of force here. That's probably a reflection of our programming, their preference, their comfortability with that. We didn't tape their hands, there's a ton there. So we shifted and we were pretty, we might've been one of the first in the league, to do, a bunch of people do it now. But we created this in-house belt squat version. And I just saw, I think Val just put out kind of a system for it. Um, we just built this thing and we threw our athletes on it. And we saw around 20 to 30% greater forces in a bilateral isometric squat. Similar knee angles, though. So that told me a little bit of information about kind of that test. Um, so we tried to deep dive on all of this ultimately. And, but the bilateral counter movement jump is the big one. And then ultimately, how do we use that? We have to comp against a few things. You know, obviously I can make some phone calls to my, my guys in the NBA. We'll look at some of those gaps. But the easy one is we comp to some of our guys in-house. So like we had a player, Ochai Baji, who just won the lottery, by far the best athlete on the team last year. He became our model citizen. Let's look like Ochai. Now everyone's not going to look like that, obviously, but it's, and then you and then you build core tiles out. And so, you know, all the stuff that Dan kind of, I'm sure he's doing, it's, it, it influenced the program and let me give you an example, because I know that we could talk abstract. Let me give you an example. Here's one. We created four groups last year uh, relative to our high minute guys. And so one of the groups became a group that lacked breaking forces. And so there was only three players in that group, but we decided to give them an actual exercise to intervene into this thing and develop this capacity. And we, you might call them reactive or reflexive eccentrics. We put a trap bar in their hand. We loaded it with their body weight. We told them to stand tall. And the same idea of a snap down, I want you to drop, catch, and stick as hard as you can. And we did that for eight weeks, and we only did it on one day. And then we retested, and we saw that those metrics actually improved. And so, uh, yeah, that's a long way to say that we're going to use it. It's going to influence the programming. Uh, but ultimately, we always want to obviously look at the game, right? Now, last year, we were in a fortunate position where our best athlete was also our best player who also won the lottery. And those things don't always happen, as we know. But when it does, it's nice to now model everybody against that. Let me take a breather. I feel like I just kind of gave you all out there. <laughs> I'm going to quickly jump in here. And <clears throat> Ramsey, you touched on it briefly with the influence of the program. But um, I guess we'll give you a second to catch up, catch your breath, and then uh, flick it over to you, Dan. So are you taking those metrics and those findings from the technology to help either reiterate that your progressions in plyos is on point or are you supplementing? Um, all right, this athlete, he's, you know, tr trending appropriately. He's, you know, moving forward a little bit faster. So let's skip a couple steps. Or are you still sticking to the mindset of, hey, these are the progressions we need to take in plyos, which is going to be a little bit slightly than, let's say, strength, strength training. 
Um, so if you could elaborate a little bit on that, that'd be great. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like I think, I think, I think you do want to have a, have a ground, a good base with like a freshman or a new athlete who you're not really familiar with. And then, but once you are able to kind of get an idea of them, you know, older athletes with a long training legacy, they probably don't need a massive general phase. By that point, you can start to target um, any, any discrepancies, you know, a way that we were doing it, um, you know, that we started kicking it around at Nebraska. And then I had to hop in and be a strength coach from time to time at Nebraska. I wasn't just doing sports science, um, which was fun. You know, it keeps you and keeps your foot in the door. Um, one thing that like we were doing at one point was we would just do a rotating bandwidth of two, twice a week jumps. So Monday we would do a counter movement jump. Friday we would do a single leg jump. The next Monday we would do a 10, five, the next Friday we would do a counter movement jump and we're just rotating through. So we're getting our slow stretch shortening cycle, bilateral slow stretch shortening cycle, unilateral elastic and kind of wheeling through it. Um, and it was something that, and, and we chose the 10, five or the hop test or whatever people want to call it. We chose it because it was fast. We didn't really, <laughs> we didn't have an, a, many other, um, but then eventually then you start to build out, um, power complexes is what we called it. And, and so the beginning of their workout program, somewhat what Ramsey was talking about, if they're showing gaps, whether that's asymmetry wise or, um, or in terms of hitting a benchmark, then we probably want to hit target their power training. They might still be doing some of these lower. That's the cool thing about plyometrics or one of the cool things is that like, it's, it's very much, a, it's a, it's a neural stimulus. No one's getting hypertrophy off this stuff. Right. So the learning curve in terms of their ability to adapt to it, it's very fast in, in my experience. So like an athlete who needs to, who needs more elastic ability, say they have an RSI uh, reactive strength index off of a, an elastic test 1.5, you know, we want that higher in the, into the twos, if they're that type of athlete, well, then we might be back to the, we're doing jump ropes. We're doing in-place jump circuits. Maybe they're doing drop jumps as part of their power training where someone else who doesn't have a lot of horsepower from a unilateral, uh, a single leg counter movement jump or whatever they can't, well, maybe they're doing either an accentuated eccentric lunge jump or a, or a, a cycle split or something along those lines. So that way, um, I think there's a big piece of that of one, we can always kind of be going back to some of our certain metrics. What does their deceleration rate of force development look like? What does their uh, force to zero velocity asymmetry look like? Uh, or landing. A lot of times landing is a big one. And especially if you have enough bandwidth on the, on the or a testing background and you know that that's a consistent asymmetry because that's a very, some of these metrics are more variable. Um, so you don't want to put a whole lot of weight on one single measurement. You want to do it consistently and see where it's, what's norm, what their normal is or what their bandwidth of normal is. Um, but then there's, there's multiple pieces. You can isolate the metrics that are important for them. And then you tell them that, and there is something to that, whether it's, you know, the placebo effect is still in effect to the athlete, you know, uh, in any, any supplement or drug would be the hottest selling supplement in the world. If it gave you the effects of the placebo effect. And there's something important to telling the athlete, hey, this specific program and this part of it, this is for you. It's based on this information that I am showing you. So there becomes a, um, a quality control. And in my experience, it helps with buy-in because then, um, you know, I think, I, think, I think people want to put the onus on the athletes a lot, but sometimes if they feel like they're just on this death march doing the same stuff over and over, you know, and there's not an individualized component to it, and they aren't just another an, another cog in the machine. Their buy-in helps more, and their aspects help more, and they can see the curves. And it's not just, yeah, you look better, man. It, it's here's the specific things, and look how much you've improved over time. 
Yeah, education, feedback to the athlete is, is key and essential. Uh, Ramsey, anything to quickly add? And then Gabe, I'll flick it back to you. Thank you. No, I mean, I thought Dan did a great job with that. And obviously, like the placebo effect is, you know, if, if you're talking research and you're talking medicine, we need to control for that because we want to know if this drug really works. If you're talking programming and coaching, I want the outcome to change. And whether my program gets there or your buy-in gets us there, whatever gets us there, I want to see these things change. And so if we can change them, even down to a metric on the force plate, if we're confident in that metric, then we should be confident that it's going to ultimately, it's underpinning a sport performance, right? Whether it's a task like jumping, springing, or cutting, or the overall performance of, hey, you didn't jump any higher, but for some reason you get more rebounds. Maybe you're quicker off the ground. Whatever it is, those are the, so when we think placebo in sport now, you don't want nocebo. You don't want bad things to happen. You don't want it to be a crutch, right? There's a deeper conversation. But for the most part, tell your athletes why they're doing it, inform them. And when they buy in, it's going to help your program. And shocker, you'll look better as a performance coach. So we're all for all of that, right? Yeah, thank you both for the feedback. I think one of the common themes we've had with our guests over the last few months we've been doing this is the key to a lot of this is just athlete education. Uh, the people have been doing it really well and, and being able to get buy-in by really doing a great job of educating the athlete on why they're doing things has really assisted in the training process and then ultimately uh, achieving the desired outcomes. So um, let's continue with the individualized approach. And we talked a little bit about the assessment of that. Uh, we Let's talk about plyometric prescription for different types of athletes within the same sport. So, right. We know that power is a function of force and velocity. Uh, so is there any difference in how your program for plyos looks for an athlete that's force bias versus an athlete with a speed bias? Um, right. And Ramsey, I think you have about 14 to 15 or so athletes. Is that right? Yeah, so, 17, right. 17, yeah, okay. 18 now. 17 to 18 now. So within that 17 to 18, right. You have 17 to 18 individuals. Some may be similar. Some may be different. Um, but then after, I guess, you've created this baseline or, or sufficient uh, base for plyometric work, what does that look like for athletes if you identified, okay, their speed bias versus force bias? Yeah, I mean, the, we do a couple things with that. And the big one that I've done and, and did actually my first year here was a true force velocity profile, and that's J.B. Burns' work. Um, I don't do that anymore, and I think some kind of new research questioned it, and then I kind of... I also just went and redid the test a bunch of different ways. I'm like, yeah, I see why. Um, and long story short, because it's a regression model, if one or one of your data points is off, your entire model's off. And so I moved away from that. But when I first got here, that's what, that's what we did is we just forced velocity profiled them. We grouped them in three groups. You were a force deficit, you were a velocity deficit, or you're a well-balanced guy. And I like the idea of deficit a little bit better than I think force or speed bias, because ultimately my goal is probably just to bring up what you're limited in. And so when we, the idea of deficit, I think just resonates a little bit more with me versus if somebody is strength biased, you might say, well, that's fine because they're strong or, uh, but I want to bring up your deficits. And if we can get you there based on the literature and based on the physics, the idea is that if we can create a well-balanced athlete, your performance should go up independent of kind of the actual speed or the force there. So we broke them into groups and then our obviously velocity deficit guys, they got, a mixture of long and short kind of stretch shortening cycle and then different loads. We just kind of attacked it from a few different angles. We didn't use the plates to necessarily categorize within there who needed long or who needed short. Right. And that's probably a way, a better way to do it, honestly. Right. We just, we didn't get to that level. 
Um, and now that I have kind of a PhD student who helps me with town, we just model based off of our guys and we just go from there and we basically bucket into like three or four groups. And if you're a group that needs some of this stretch shortening cycle, some of this speed stuff, then you're just going to do some different variations of it. Um, but an easy one that I always like to share with coaches that don't have some of, you know, a force plate, for example, is you can do some like an essential utilization ratio. And that's pretty much cheap and free. I popped into the chat. I seen somebody talked about the My Jump app. It's a cheap app. Download it um, or get a Vertec. It doesn't really matter. Just control for hip height. Do a squat jump. Do a counter movement jump. The counter movement jump divided by the squat jump is going to give you a ratio. And if you can get the idea is around 1.2, right? And so if you're not at 1.2, if you're not getting at least 20% more out of your stretch shortening cycle, and in this case, a long stretch shortening cycle, then you might need more of that stuff, right? And so it's go out and do more of that stuff. Um, but that's how I would look at it. And then I would probably pass it to Dan now, who could probably give you a better answer on some of the deeper dive there. But uh, I do think from a coaching perspective, an EUR is so easy for people to go out and use. There's limitations in it. But start there, right? If somebody's counter movement jump and their squat jump are very close to each other, it probably means they're not getting a ton out of the stretch shortening cycle. So figure out why, or better yet, even if you don't know like the, the, the mechanism behind it, just give them stretch shortening cycle things and see if you can widen that gap. Now, the goal isn't to widen the gap because you make their squat jump go down, make them all go up, right? But ultimately, you want to, I, I would argue, you want to get at least 15 to 30% out of that thing. And if you're not, there's a, there's a reason and try to uncover that. But Dan, I, I'll pass to you on that. No, I, I think, I think you nailed it. I, I, and the eccentric utilization ratio is something I used with Mike back at St. John's, you know, I, I mean, we, it, it, it's, it's awesome. You know, because it, it, it makes sense. It makes sense to the athletes. It's free. You know, there, there's a lot of good pieces to it, but I think it kind of goes back to the point you alluded to there. Um, it kind of comes back to your assessment. You know, if, if you have a horizontal jump, a vertical jump, a throw, you know, everything that you do in your program is an assessment in itself, you know? So, so, um, you know, if an athlete, if they squat the house and an assessment tells me they're, they're at a force deficit, yeah, you know, <laughs> I'm probably going to pull back a little, you know, if, if I have a test that says one of our best athletes is not powerful, well, I'm questioning the test more than I'm questioning the athlete, right? It, it, you know, if it's someone who's clearly really twitchy and really, really type two, like, you know, at, at a certain point, we got to play the logic game. If there, if we have, if I, if we're working with a receiver who's all pro caliber and at the college, if they're an all, all conference, whatever, and they're, they're this fast or whatever, they're probably not at a velocity deficit, you know, like, like maybe there's aspects that we can start the game. Maybe there's different movement competencies that they can still tweak, but at the end of the day, we got to keep the main thing, the main thing. Right. So I, I think if you're varying your testing approach, but always assuming, always understanding that all of these are different abilities, you know, a long stretch shortening cycle is different from a short stretch shortening cycle, which is different from absolute strength, which is different from motor coordination and a bunch of different patterns. So, it, you know, I don't, I don't think you want to cut it up so much where, oh, well, here's what we're going to do for plyometrics based on this one single assessment. I think you want, like I said, you always want to kind of keep the whole picture in view because, uh, you know, in team sports, there isn't just one aspect. If you're working with the track and field, you can start breaking it down. What's their 10 versus what's their, you know, 60. And we can start, you know, looking at acceleration versus top end, whatever. Um, but I, 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 to kind of actually answer the actual question, um, I think that's where it starts to get important of 
having a multifaceted battery and then having thresholds that you want to hit. If an athlete scores very poorly on a reactive strength index on an elastic test, their top end probably isn't there. And, it, and then from there, it's a, it's a decision for you as a practitioner to say, is this an athlete who needs it? I'm not losing sleep on, on an offensive lineman who doesn't have great elastic qualities. You know, they aren't there. They never spend time there. You know, it, it's, um, you know, but for some of them on an acceleration, on more joint compliance, on things where it's longer ground contact times, I, I am going to really focus on those. So it's a really, you're always kind of weighing What's the, what's the costs and benefits? What's the, you know, what's the risk reward for some of these things? Um, you know, it, it's having a, having a really heavy, you know, a throw, I used to work with throwers, for instance, there's certain stiffness qualities that are there, but I'm not, I'm not losing any sleep over their flying 30, you know, like I'm just not, they never, they don't run anywhere. So why am I going to be changing their program based on that? Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's always kind of a weighing of where, what exercises are we doing that dictate, you know, what are our assessments for each of these, where are their gaps? And is that really important for them to have gaps? You know, a high-end sprinter is probably not going to have a high, like, especially a 200 or a really elastic kind of guy. They're probably not going to be super strong in an absolute sense, but are they strong enough? You know, can we get away with what we have and what's the least amount that we need? Because, you don't want to dampen them down, you know, hypertrophy work and absolute strength work. That's going to dampen those greyhounds down and you're going to really start taking away from what makes them special in the first place. Yeah, I think that's the third time I want to say in seven panels, we've heard that the phrase, keep the main thing, the main thing. Uh, so it's a commonality. And I like what you said, Dan, about zooming out and seeing the big picture when it comes to this athlete, especially in team sport. Right, especially in team sport, the sport, sport skill, is likely the most important factor, right, is the most important factor, how good at their, their actual sport. So understanding that when you can dive deep into maybe one measurement or one data point, but then being able to zoom out and see how that fits in the big picture. I really like that. So thank you both for your input on that. Um, go ahead, Dan. And I just wanted to add one more thing. Like the, I think, I think it, it was brought up earlier of a lot of times, to kind of isolate, especially in team sports, if you talk to the position coach or even the athlete, they'll be able to tell you where they need to improve, you know, and then you can start saying, well, what are my exercises and assessments that are, might be related to some of these qualities? Cause you're right. The sport's the most important thing. So if, if they can't hold some of these positions in an isometric sense, maybe absolute strength is one of those things, but you know, a lot of times it's dialogue because in, in team sports, it's, it's just not that clean. You know, it, it's pretty muddy. You know, there's Larry bird was not the most twitchy a lot, but that, that dude could ball, right? Like, like, like he knew how to play basketball and that's what made him special. Right. So each athlete's their own thing, but you know, the people who know the sport know why they're good or why they're not, what's going to hold them back. Absolutely. And one of the things I want to talk about, we started to hit on it just a little bit is the never forgotten about strength training. So Ramsey, I'm going to start with you and then we'll go over Dan. When considering your annual training plan or even writing a specific mesocycle, how do you marry your plyometric training with your strength training? Are there certain emphases based on the positions, the planes or intensities for that day or a certain quality you're trying you know, to go after? And what have you found to be most effective when it comes to the strength training combined with plyometric training? Yeah, I mean, there's always there's always some level of vertical integration going on, right? Like we're always working on all this stuff. 
Um, I don't break it down by, uh, I don't separate them by a day, right? If it's, um, you know, for example, early on in our off season, they're basically separate. So you come in and in different blocks, you're not going to be doing strength training, traditional resistance training with your plow metrics or your snap downs or any of that. Those things kind of progress on their own separately. It's like, we're going to get through this stuff early on. You're going to come in, like before we even touch a weight, you're going to knock out your snap downs. You're going to be doing your jump rope. You're going to be, and we're progressing those through these months. And then you get in your traditional training. And that's basically how it sits through the off season. And then these things start to kind of come together a little bit in a sense of we'll make you very strong in July and then hopefully pay attention in August when you go home. And then when you come back in September, we're going to find out if you did that because I'm going to basically go back to my July. My last week of July looks like my last week of August because I just want to know if you did anything at home, right? Um, but once we build some of the, once we have confidence in these underpinning qualities, like can you produce force now? Can you uh, absorb force or produce force eccentrically now, right? Can you control this? Is there a motor pattern here? Do you have work capacity to recover in between sets? Can you last all week? All of those things are going to kind of develop. And then they begin to merge as we get closer to season, right? It's the idea of like your GPP versus your kind of sports-specific prep. And as we get closer to season, it starts to look like, and they start to blend and marry like a complex training model. So I'm, I'm a big kind of and I wouldn't even say, uh, uh, I don't even know if PAP is happening, right? This idea of post-activation potentiation, like I'm not measuring calcium ions. I don't know. I just know that if we built force and you're strong enough, you won't be buried by the force work that we're doing because we're moving that toward a speed strength or a strength speed kind of model anyways, right? So you're not going to get buried from the resistance. And then our snap downs have kind of been removed already or so the way I introduce some of our jumping stuff is like a seated box jump is our first big one. I'm going to remove the stretch shortening cycle. I'm going to remove the landing. I just want to know propulsively, can you jump? And then eventually those things come together. Now you got a counter movement with it to a box jump. And then shocker, we're going to go depth jump after that. We'll probably do a step in first. And all these things kind of begin to come together. And now we're a month out from season and you're hitting some speed squats and that's paired with a depth jump. And it's like, well, how do we get there? Well, we just kind of, progressed super logically not fancy wouldn't look good on instagram but come day one i'm going to be confident that we're ready so uh, they basically to answer your question directly through june july and august they sit separately they kind of move separately and then in september and october they begin to merge and marry like a complex training model so that we can kind of peak come november when season starts yeah yeah i i i I really like to go the, I think the vertical integration, I, I mean, ever, you know, the, the Charlie Francis system of, okay, what's your GPP look like? I'm a big movement diversity guy at that time. You know, it, it, a lot of these guys can get so bound up in single plane or, or such consistent movements or favoring the same thing. Um, I think a lot of times an overuse injury could be looked at as a lack of movement diversity and a lack of stress to, to opposing or supportive tissues. So I think that's a time that you start to build that in. And then, and, and, and then it starts to just get kind of nuanced in terms of like, if you're looking for, um, if you're trying to move the needle, there's certain elements that you can't train that frequently. Or if you're going to hit absolute strength or hypertrophy, that's probably, a, depending on, and it's probably a twice a week thing per body part, whatever you're looking at, you know, but if it's a motor coding or a motor unit thing, and especially at low volumes, you can do that pretty frequently. So I've gotten more and more um, into the, especially considering the fact that if we're looking for motor unit recruitment, we're looking for maximum outputs. You really want to be paying attention to, well, how, you know, if we're looking at the Omega wave, you know, the fluid periodization model, you want them to be fresh, but in team sports, not everyone's going to be fresh all the time. 
So what you can get away with is some lower doses at some really high qualities before they get fatigued and before they get too beaten down. So, you know, things like a snap down, things like a rudiment, things like certain plyos might be in the program or in the part of the warmup all the time. Uh, you know, when I was, when I was at that D3, we ran the football team. Every, we, we did some acceleration work every single day. Some now it might've been a 10 to 20. That's it. But at least we're, we're always, we're polishing the car a little bit. Right. And then there are other times that we really want to hit the gas. But I think, um, I think to that point, there are certain elements that you kind of keep in there, but it's just like a minimal dose. And then there are other pieces that, that just kind of marry well, absolute strength, is going to marry fairly well with a longer stretch shortening cycle kind of movement or if you're if you're kind of marrying certain patterns and then you can contrast it or complex it with some of these higher motor unit movements um you know hypertrophy phases fatigue elastic elements so that might be something that if you're going to get any elastic work get it get low dose get a little bit in just to kind of keep that motor program going but then you're going to do some things that aren't going to be great for that specific component so like that's another piece. If you're doing any sort of elastic testing, you got to understand the elastic athletes are not going to do well during that time. And that's just got to be planned. Like if you expect it, that's fine. But then as you progress through to strength and more high motor unit recruitments, more power phases, then it, then it starts to build in of the high strength, heavy compliance, heavy weights. Then we're starting to deal with more compliance structures, starting to introduce some power. And then kind of like Ramsey's saying, then it all kind of blends together. Then it's multiple response, power training, really elastic velocity-based work. You know, a cue that I use all the time with plyos is just violence, just always violence. You know, you don't want, there's a certain time to be really controlled. There's a certain time for violence. And then in, in season, it kind of follows a track model, in my opinion, especially if you're fortunate, you know, it's a little different if you're multiple, multiple sports, multiple games a week versus in a situation where if you have one big game a week, well, then you can have a time where it's a little lower. And then towards the end of the week, maybe you're doing some accelerated jumps, some med balls, some really light resisted things that it's a more of a velocity focus. That's going to speed up the nervous system, use it as a primer day and go from there. Um, but those are times that you just kind of got to, as you, as a practitioner, constantly be assessing where are these athletes at? Because if they are, if they're trashed and they did a long road trip and they got back and you had a heavy day or a high plyo day, you're, you're, you might be digging a hole deeper than what you want, you know? And that's, so that's kind of these plyometrics are, are pretty, um, they're a powerful stimulus, but they got to be done well, you know? Yeah. I think a lot of human performance professionals would agree, right? The off season. Yeah. Plyometrics really important. we got to make sure that we do that. I think as you head into the in season, that becomes a little bit more opaque, um, with your respective sports and Dan, you just started to hit on a little bit. I'm gonna go to Ramsey and then Dan, give you another chance to kind of hit on it some more if you want. Ramsey, I know in basketball, this is kind of often talked about as the in-season plyometric training. I know in talking with a lot of professionals, some do a little bit in low doses. Uh, some will perform some depth drops every few weeks. What does your in-season plyometric training look like um, as you start from kind of the beginning of the season and then towards the end? And, and Dan, again, mentioned, I'm giving credit for this, is just talking with the athletes right on that specific day, but removing that and looking at more, okay, bigger picture. This is what an ideal scenario I'd like to do. What does that in-season plyometric training look like for your basketball athletes? Yeah, we do do a little bit of it. Um, and by a little bit, I mean, it could be a day where you're getting, you know, if it's our jumps, you're getting anywhere from 10 to maybe 25 jumps on the high end. 
And that's progressed and progressed based off of effort and intent and maybe what we're doing. But we do do a little bit because in season gives us plenty of repetitions at this stuff, but we can go a week or two without high outputs. And so it's like, I want a max effort, you know, occasionally from my guys. And so I don't just let it sit on hoping it happened on the basketball court or hoping it happened in the game. And then obviously there's a further breakdown to half my team doesn't even play, right? Your rotations are going to, I shouldn't say they don't play. They play, obviously they practice a ton in college, we practice a ton. But when your rotations get cut to seven or eight, it's like, well, some of you, we probably should be in here jumping our asses off to make, because we can make progress. Or if nothing else, let's expose these high efforts because you're not getting them necessarily in a game anyways. Um, but even our high jumpers, like our, our high minute guys who are jumping through the build, you know, through the roof, we guys that could jump 40 inches, it's still not uncommon for them to be in season doing a box split squat jump with a max effort. And when they don't try, I get on their ass, right? And so it's, we still want those things, um, but volume's so low that I'm not expecting you to necessarily increase your vertical during this time. Um, and we don't do a ton of speed stuff once season hits. Um, you know, I'm not working on acceleration during season. Like we're going to, we get those from practice. Like we're going to, we may not jump as high as we can all the time, but you're going to sprint your butt off all the time, uh, whether it's practice or a game. So some of that stuff we don't do, but we do jump during season. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. Anything you'd like to add? No, I, th- I, I, I think, I think you got it right there. I mean, it's, it's just, again, it's an equation of, you know, are these the high minute, low minute athletes are they? And then, I mean, the common one, we all know this, anyone, anyone who's practiced with or, or, or been a practitioner with team sports, some guys, sometimes athletes are going to come in and they're going to have knee tendonitis, their feet are going to be jacked up, you know, maybe their maybe their plyo or their power is going to be a hard isometric that day. You know, because because at the end, like you said, at the end of the, at the end of the day, we got to get them ready for the game. My my exercises don't matter if they aren't ready for the game. So, um, yeah, I think that's the big doing a lot of box stuff, like you're saying, Ramsey, of things because they, they're getting a lot of impacts. They're, they're, there's no shortage of impacts and decelerations and violent movements out on the court or out on the field. Um, you know, it's really trying to find areas where you can fill in gaps if there are gaps to fill in, or like you said try to just get them to touch that ceiling so that they're, if they're playing at 80%, if, you know, what's the old thing, like they spend most of their time in that 80 to 85% mark, let's keep that at 80, 85%. They don't have to get up to 90 just to hit what used to be their 80, right? Like keep that ceiling there through um, just be intelligent about it in ways that aren't going to aggravate them. Yeah, completely. Yeah. I just, I always think exposure. Can we expose to 90% of an effort on these things? And then we'll probably keep the ceiling around where it is. Um, the caveat that I would add is I'm fortunate now from the programming side that all of my guys are between the ages of 18 and 24 in their young, resilient bodies that can handle a lot of stuff and it's college and we're going to push you versus the NBA. It's a different conversation. So whatever I said today, just know it probably is with the lens of like my guys are 18 to 24, haven't had a lot of training background. We could push them a lot. And if they complain, I tell them to suck it up and we just keep going like, Right. That, that's where I'm at now. And so some of these responses would obviously be different in different environments. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I appreciate the feedback on all the questions we've had to this point. I want to give our attendees a chance to ask some questions. I know some people already put some questions in the chat, so we're going to get to them. If you have any more questions and you're listening in, feel free to share that in the chat and we'll try to get to all of them. We'll answer them in order. So, Mike, why don't you go ahead and start to address some of those things? Awesome. Dan Ramsey. <clears throat> 
Great, great talk on plyometrics. Definitely learned a lot. So thanks for sharing your insights. Uh, we did touch on this technology briefly. I'll start with you, Ramsey, and then Dan going to you. Um, this question is coming in from, say, Kulik. Uh, opinion on using my jump to app to measuring jumps and other variables, and maybe elaborate on some other technologies that you guys would recommend. I know, Ramsey, you talked about Vertech, you've talked about Forestex, but maybe there's some other tech as well as my jump to, um, especially if you don't have the budget um, for some some organizations or universities. So Ramsey, to you first. Yeah, big fan of uh, the MyJump app and actually the suite of apps. I think, is that Carlos Dasbon that makes all the apps? I think he makes those apps. Uh, big fan though in general of his apps because they're, you're a sports scientist on a mobile phone at that point. Mm -hmm. um, it's It can be challenging to use in a high volume athlete setting because it is a slow-mo camera and you have to go frame by frame and piece out when the foot contact happened. So, uh, but in general, big fan. Um, other tech that you can use, you know, obviously if you're talking measuring jumps, uh, there's a uh, Vertec. I'm also a big fan of actually just jump mats. I wouldn't necessarily trust the data for the height to be accurate, but you can trust that it's gonna improve the outputs. Like guys are gonna try because it's so easy to compete. And that's one, you know, force, some of the force plate technologies now have created some faster softwares that allow us to kind of jump, you know, then you could speak to, you probably can get through 50 athletes pretty quick on certain, uh, if you got like the um, force tech jump going or whatever. Um, but in general, I think, you know, just ultimately don't use technology as a crutch, but use it to influence programming and ultimately make it better. Uh, your iPhone is a good one though, literally a slow-mo camera. If you're seeing something that, I mentioned earlier, I sound like the guy who's like backtracking. I mentioned earlier that we used to use a tablet and I'm not saying coach through the damn camera, but if you see somebody that clearly is, they got a bad angle or they're whatever, their knees diving in or they're taking forever to get off the ground or you see a trunk sway, it could be as quick as like, hold on, do that again. And then just show it to them. And that alone is good visual feedback. We know from the data that feedback can improve outcome, right? If you give someone an output alone, you can improve power by 10%, just by telling them what just happened. So, um, but I can't think of many like cheap apps or cheap technology, but if you can track a bar speed, if you have a camera on your phone, this is probably it, honestly, because there's apps for that too, I just remembered. So yeah, use your iPhone. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm insane, but I mean, it, it, it's the old quote, if it looks right, it flies right, right? Like it, with, with, when you're dealing with ballistics and the high velocities and the high forces that are coming with plyometrics, joint position and postures really, really matter. And if they, if, if the athlete and, and from side, from rear, from front, whatever, um, the slow motion camera is so valuable for that. And, and, and just to bring them onto the same page, these are all visual athletes, you know, they're very kinesthetic learners. So that's a great avenue to go down. And I, I do enjoy, enjoy the, my, the, my sprint and the, my jump. Um, then you're kind of getting back to the, the issues with the force velocity that Ramsey touched on earlier, like you're measuring a squat jump, not necessarily measuring an elastic or a dynamic jump sometimes. And so it's like that each assessment has its holes, right? But if you have a technical model that you're going towards, like what does a good rep look like for you? Okay, my, the toes, are, the knees are in line with the second toe, the, the shin angle and torso angle are roughly similar. Like, like if you can start checking off the boxes as you move through these exercises, visually and then okay let's video this i i either need to go through it or the athlete needs to see what i'm talking about 
in terms of something low cost, like I think the force plates are very, 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 very valuable. I think you can really get a lot of out of them, but also I was a division three strength coach and uh, like asking for like a budget for a vertex was like a big ask. So I, I, get, <laughs> I get that. So then, then you're, then you're dealing with, you got to just sharpen up that coach's eye and that camera is really, really valuable for that. Yeah. I mean, I guess, sorry, just to jump in it because I'm just always sensitive to people on a budget, right. Or coaches on a budget. Like you can literally in our weight room, there's tape that's hanging from the ceiling mm -hmm. and it's marked with heights. Is it good for testing? I mean, if you had enough pieces of tape, sure. <laughs> but is it good for training? If you're in a, an environment where you can't get a vertex, hang anything from the ceiling. It doesn't matter. As long as you can somehow measure the height, get a ladder out. I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud, like put a tennis ball on something and have them hit and then move it a little higher. And then it goes back to earlier, we talked about internal, external cueing. Like that's an external cue now. So don't get too caught up in the testing that you forget to train for performance. I think, you know, that's a deeper discussion, but. Um, yeah. and, and just one point to finish with that, that I think you're exactly right on. I would rather have cheap equipment and tape that has done well consistently than oh, I did a force plate jump back in September and we're trying to make decisions off it here in December. Like you, that's a totally different athlete then, you know, like if you can do something consistently and track it over time, because half the time they don't care what the test is. They want to know if they're getting better, you know, and you want to know if they're getting better. So if you're doing something consistently as part of the training or, or, and then you're kind of covering different avenues, like we've talked about, you have a lot of control over the process. Like it, 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 you do not need to, you do not need a lot of, you don't need a 1080 to know a lot of these things. If the athlete looks like they're running better, if you have some better timers or, or whatever, you know, you know, any, you know, you know, anymore with the apps, you don't even need the timers, you know? <laughs> Great. Awesome. Yeah. I think you guys were spot on technologies, uh, just a tool, you know, it just added it to your toolbox and, and help it make uh, educated decisions, but it's not the end all be all. We have two more really good questions. Dan, I'm coming to you first on this one. This is coming from Scott. Uh, it's a little bit of a lengthy question. So if I need to repeat, feel free, but it's a great question. When it comes to return to play, where you're redeveloping capacity, are there any underlying tissue specific, specific adaptations you're chasing with your plyos? If so, are you tra tracking those changes? Or do you view this as more of a neuromuscular training approach where when they own it, they are good? And that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, kind of to Ramsey's point, like I'm not ultrasounding it if, to answer it, you know, in the most direct sense, that's something where I'm going to lean on the, on the professionals and the athletic medicine side. And, you know, obviously a lot of this stuff in the return to play, the return to play and the training staff have to be lockstep. Um, if you're, if you're, if you're off kilter there or, or, someone's cleared to run, but they aren't cleared to do basic jumps. Like they're, you know, these things aren't adding up. Right. So, um, I would lean on them to say, okay, are we to a point where the tissue can tolerate at least very introductory loading? And then their first, then we're back to the first plyometrics might, their feet might not leave the ground. They might just be dropping down in a controlled stance. Can they maintain that position? Um, and then from there, I think it's just with a return to play, you have to keep your eye on the joint angles. Cause again, a lot, if they're a good athlete, they can compensate around it. And if they're competitive, they will throw technique out the window to try to jump higher, get back to a mark that they used to be. So um, that's something where we got to make sure that we're put it, 
then it becomes a game of we have to build exercises to force them into positions where they have to handle those forces at that tissue in a very progressive long-term stretch. Because, because again, what's nice about these things is uh, intensity is the driver with plyometrics and in, in return to play. Um, you know, volume can get you part of the way, but at a certain point they got to hit that ceiling and that's, what's going to start moving the needle from a neurological standpoint and from guarding for them to be able to trust it, trust what they're dealing with. So I would say I, I trust it from the athletic medicine staff that, okay, this person is ready to get back to training. And then I am very, very judicious and cautious and progressing. I'm very, very, it might be, you know, we'll start only vertical snap downs today. And then okay, maybe next time we'll do two vertical double leg. Let's try a single leg, you know, and then let, and if it does, and if it looks terrible, we're bailing on it right now. And we're going back to what we're good at because we still got to, we, we want to just perfect training matters and, and hitting really good quality positions and postures within and how you to tolerate for us. That's how you can start to mitigate some of the re-injury risk. Cause I think a lot of the re-injury risk comes from the athlete can hit their same triple hop for distance. They can hit their same vert from beforehand, but they still might be favoring the other leg by 30% or whatever it is, you know? So then you're overloading the one leg, your other leg is never really getting loaded and they get cleared, you know? And then we say, we cross our fingers. And so I think it's position right away, but being very, very cautious and kind of leaning on that medicine staff and just, again, hyper communication with the athlete. Uh, are they hurting? Are they sore? Does that feel all right? Does it not feel all right? Are they comfortable with it? Are they not, you know, they, 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 all these pieces all go into play on how, um, you know, I was talking with the guy, any return to play program that I help organize, it's a week at a time. I'll put out a week at a time with goals. I'm not going to build out a four week program because I don't know where they're going to be in two, you know? Um, so it's a lot, very, very adaptable because everyone's going to have a little different refractory curves and different adaptation curves on these things. Ramsey, anything to add? No, I mean, I completely agree with Dan. I think you mentioned like one thing there, you know, maybe the, in week two, you go to two bilateral snap downs and then you throw a unilateral in. And then, and I thought what you mentioned was, is coaching, right? You said, and if it looks like if it doesn't look good, we're removing it right there on the spot. I think a lot of a lot of return to play, your return to play needs to obviously have a have a have a bird's eye view progression and where we want to go. And then you mentioned like, you know, people get cleared and we, we cross our fingers. And it's like, that's actually, you mentioned it because you know how common it is in sport, right? And it's like, it's ridiculous. You should never, ever return an athlete and cross your finger. And, I, and obviously, then you weren't saying you do, but but that that happens in our industry. And it's like, my my rehab approach is pretty simple. Let's say you tear a hamstring. Well, before we clear you, I'm going to try to tear your hamstring off in the weight room, and then I'm going to try to tear it off on the practice court. And then when it doesn't tear, I'm going to have confidence that you can play in a game, and then I'm not going to cross my fingers. Uh, and I think that that should probably be where we get to. But to Dan's point, like, I don't ultrasound anyone. We don't MRI anybody. But I would argue that if you're in a high-level environment, for example, the NFL, NBA, and you have some very specific use cases, like players who get $50 million a year, I would definitely do all of those things because it's so easy to do and the price is justified. And that's the conversation for another day. <laughs> all that great insight. I just want to quickly get to our last question. Uh, this is coming from Raphael. Any recommended books, resources on plyometric training, maybe people to listen to or uh, 
kind of chime in podcasts and stuff like that. So uh, Ramsey, I'll go to you first and then Dan, feel free to chime in with any resources and then I'm going to Gabe uh, to wrap it up. So thank you. Yeah, quick one, easy one that I would give out. I'm a big fan of Lauren Landau. Um, and on YouTube, he has some resources on Plyometrics. So go to YouTube, type Lauren Landau Plyometrics and anything that pops up with him in it, I would watch it. Yeah, he's real. He he's awesome. I, I mean, I, I think the old Charlie Francis books with how were great diagrams of how you may, how you mirror what are the compatible training elements that we're looking at. Um, I think a lot of the value or a lot of value comes from you know the people who do the return to play because the technical aspect is really important. So anything by Dan Paff, anything from Bushak Snyder, like like they same deal. You can go on YouTube and see how these guys have laid a lot of these things out. And you uh, and you can really learn a lot, and then a lot of times it'll point you into other directions. Yeah, I listen to Boost up all the time. Mm -hmm. I love every time I hear a different lecture or something like that. I just you know you walk away with something, which is awesome. Um, so some tremendous resources. Thanks for those. I have two questions. One is on the topic supply metrics, and one uh, is a different question, which we'll finish with. Uh, the last one for plyos, and for lack of a better term, and incorporating non-traditional plyometrics. So do you introduce any multi-surface slanted surface plyometrics, or maybe create a positions that are more sport demand relevant in your plyometrics? And I'll start with Ramsey, then go to Dan. Ramsey, I think I watched a presentation you filmed on your driveway, right? The slant of the driveway. I can remember some of the hopping that you showed on that. So that kind of opened my mind to some of the kind of slant things. And now you're seeing, I think more videos, at least on social media of some slant boards that are out there and things like that. So um, and maybe even barefoot, anything that you incorporate in your training that's kind of, quote, non-traditional plyometrics? Yeah, we, we don't do a ton of it. Um, we'll do like, um, I just call them multi-pogos. They put one foot on a bench, the back leg is behind them extended, not overly extended, but just extended enough. And I just tell them to just hop around. Like, I don't really care where you go because we're just trying to load the foot and the Achilles tendon at these different angles that we know are probably important in general. Um but that's really the the length of that. Uh, you can get crazy, obviously, on social media, but um, that's about as creative as I get with that stuff. Uh, I think regardless of what you do, because I'm, I'm a fan of it, I think it makes sense. Uh, but just think extensive, think low amplitude, think higher volumes, but lower intensities. Don't do anything that's high intent on a surface that you're not ready for. And for the most part, your athlete's probably not going to be on that surface anyway, so you know, let's, let's keep it a little more traditional, but yeah, that's all we do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm the same. I think that, I think when you're that for like the most creative that I'll get to is, is something where it's like a late stage rehab again, it's problem solving too, right? Like, like a knee athlete, I might have them kind of do a quarter squat knee bend on a single leg, start doing some repeat jumps. And then I might start pushing them you know, I might get, I might behind them and just add some chaos to it where they don't know where the perturbation is coming from, but their foot has to react and start to kind of make it more reflexive. Um, whereas, uh, someone with a lower leg or ankle, maybe we're doing some extensive things in the sand, but the, yeah, I mean, these are high force movements. You don't, you don't want to throw a whole lot of gas on that fire. I think. Yeah, for sure. Thanks. Um, always interesting to see kind of what's out there and uh, appreciate that feedback. And I like what you said right there, Dan, the chaos kind of later. And that goes back to what Ramsey said in the beginning, which was that control before chaos. So bringing those things together. So last question we have for you, I want to be mindful of the time and really appreciative of it is 
It's everything. Uh, it's a question we like to ask all of our guest panelists that join us here is what does your own training look like right now? And are you practicing what you preach to your athletes? Or are you training for something specific? Are you experimenting? What does that look like? And we'll start with Dan and finish with Ramsey. You know, and it, it, sometimes my training is sad anymore. Like, like it's just, <laughs> sometimes I'm just hitting a one by 20 block and I'm just getting in and getting out. If I got 20 minutes, I'm getting 20 minutes. I, if I'm, if I'm really on it, you know, now it's warm. So I've been trying to do more hiking and get outside. I'm on it. I'm on a good yoga practice, but I will mix in. I love hill sprints. I'll do a, a, a hardcore lower body day. If I'm feeling up to it, I'll do some bodybuilding because I think a lot of us got into it because we like some bodybuilding stuff. So, um, you know, I, I mix it up anymore. I, I you know, I think, and I think a lot of us would agree. I, I'm a pretty big hypocrite on it where I'll follow, I'll, I'll make a plan and I'll put a lot of emphasis on it. But then like, if I'm not feeling it, I'll, I'll get my journal out and I'll just make what I want to do that day. You know, so. Dan, uh, I, Dan does a lot of calf raises. <laughs> I micro, I micro dose biceps every day. That's the most important. <laughs> We're all guilty of that. Ramsey, what's going uh, on over there? Yeah, I mean, mine's pretty easy. I'm I got a vacation in Tulum coming up first week of August, so uh, it's basically gonna be tank top workouts until then, and then uh, and then probably when I get back, I'll have more fun with my training. But right now, I'm basically just trying to get as big as I can for that. <laughs> oh, that's great! It's always really fun to hear what people have to say. We've had some really interesting answers, um, so. We appreciate that. And uh, it's always fun to hear. So enjoy that vacation in Tulum. I'm sure it's well-earned. Um, so we can really talk about this all night, but uh, that is the time that we have for tonight. A huge thank you to our attendees that joined us live for the KES. A huge thank you to our two panelists, Dan Ridenauer and Dr. Ramsey Nijem. We appreciate their time and all the knowledge they shared with us tonight. Please be sure to give them both a follow on social media. Dan on Twitter, Ramsey on Twitter and Instagram. We'll include their handles in the info along with a link to the Applied Performance Coach Certification and Mentorship. This discussion will be publicly available on the Kaiser Fitness YouTube page and the audio will be up on Spotify as well under the Kaiser Education Series. We hope you'll join us in two weeks from now for our final KES panel for the spring summer of 2022. Thank you everybody and have a great night. Appreciate it guys.